right. Well, let's get after it. I should give a little context to my rant earlier. Um, I I uh, moved from the Antichrist that is AT and T to the second Antichrist that is T Mobile. And I did it in order to save money, but I think I sold my soul in the process. I hate cell phone companies. If you work for one, um, God bless you. Um, but I, uh, I lost everything off of my phone. They, they promised me I wouldn't. I lost it all. So if I don't uh, have your number in my phone, then you may not ever hear from me again. <laughs> um, but you have my number, so you can... Get a hold of me. Well, we're uh, every year. Uh, there's a guy by the name of Stephen Prothero. He's uh, he's the chairman of uh, religion of the religion department at Boston University, and uh, he gives his undergraduates a uh, he gives his undergraduate students a 15 question quiz at the beginning of the year, and every year they fail the quiz. Uh, so just for fun this morning, I thought uh, I'll give you the quiz, uh, not the whole quiz, but I'll give you eight questions of the quiz and, and see how you do. So get your pencils out, everybody, uh, and school is in session. No, get, grab a pen, uh, grab a piece of paper, and I'm going to give you the questions. Just kind of write them down in there, and then I'm going to give you the answers here in a second. And actually, you're going to pass the paper. No, I'm just kidding. You're just going to self-grade here. Um, the first question is, name the four Gospels. Name the four Gospels. Because this is all about the Bible, FYI. Okay, where according to the Bible was Jesus born? Okay, President George W. Bush spoke in his first inaugural address of the Jericho Road. What Bible story was he invoking? What are the first five books of the Hebrew Bible or the Christian Old Testament? And if you were here last week and you missed this question, going home. No, I'm just kidding. What is the golden rule? God helps those who help themselves. Is this in the Bible? And if so, where is it in the Bible? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Does this appear in the Bible? And maybe the easiest question of all, name all of the Ten Commandments. You don't have to write out, thou shalt not. Just write this and this and this. You can't do this, can't do this, can't do this. What? The keywords, yeah. Let's see how you do. Everybody good? Got them all? All right, here we go. Uh, four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You get it? Okay, where, according to the Bible, was Jesus born? Bible says Bethlehem. 
President George W. Bush spoke in his first inaugural address at Jericho Road. What Bible story was he invoking? He's talking about the Good Samaritan. What are the first five books of the Hebrew Bible or the Christian Old Testament? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We talked about those last week. What is the golden rule? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Matthew 7, 12. God helps those who help themselves. Is this in the Bible? If so, where? No, it's not in the Bible. Uh, Those are the words of Benjamin Franklin. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Does this appear in the Bible? Yes, it's in the Beatitudes of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And then the Ten Commandments. No other gods before me. Don't make any graven images. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness against your neighbor. And you shouldn't covet how do we do? Anybody get them all right? No one? I think you should preach, actually. You can have a prize. We got free coffee right out in the lobby. You can put as much cream in it as you want. Why does this guy give this test every year? He says it's because everybody should know the basics of the Bible. In fact, in a commentary for the Los Angeles Times, he said, uh, he titled the commentary, We Live in the Land of Biblical Idiots. He grew up Episcopalian and then became, in his own words, a spiritually confused Christian who was one of those idiots. And he knew he shouldn't be. He knew that he should have more information. And that's really what this series is about. This series is intended and trying to fix that a little bit for us to take a crash course in the Bible and to to take a 30,000-foot approach to all 66 books of the Bible in seven weeks and to have a better understanding of what's actually in it. And if we could do that, maybe, just maybe, it would inspire us and ignite something in us to then dig into the God's Word on our own. The theme verse for this series is Romans chapter 15, verse 4, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, We might have hope. This is about hope. This is about diving into his word and experiencing why in the world is the Old Testament there? And why do I have to read numbers and the genealogies? And what's that thread of relationship that God wants us to have with each other as well as with him? Uh, The second theme verse is Psalm 119, 105. Your word, Lord, is a lamp unto my feet and it's a light unto my path. That uh, as we continue on, we discover that more, the more we understand about Scripture, the more we understand about His word, the more it begins to direct and, and, and instruct us in the ways that we're to go. So last week we kicked everything off with a look at the first five books. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Today we're going to look, if you thought last week was long, uh, this week we're going to look at the next 12 books of the Bible. These are known as the history books. And if you don't like history, and some of you already just groaned even when I said it, if you don't like history, 
I'm going to do my very best to make this as painless as possible. I happen to like history. I find history interesting, especially uh, ancient history, antiquity, where uh, you, you get to discover. I got to, when we went to Israel, we got to sit at the temple steps. Not like maybe where the temple steps were. We actually got to sit on them and spend some time praying. Uh, in devotion to the Lord. And so I love the history of our world. I love, the, I love American history. I love biblical history. I love it all. So uh, class is in session. We're going to jump right in. And before we walk through each one of the books, and I'm, I promise you, we'll, we'll get you out on time today. Uh, I want to give you an overview of the history in the history books. So if you remember from last week, and if you weren't here last week, you can go back and watch the message. But Deuteronomy ends with Moses dying and Joshua bringing the Israelite people into the promised land. So these people have been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Joshua's finally bringing these people, uh, the people of Israel, into that land. And it's a lot of history. It begins, it begins with that, but then it moves on into uh, this understanding of the people taking, uh, of the Israelites taking possession of the land and the history behind what all was entailed with that. Uh, it began, as they began to settle, they appoint leaders known as judges, which then lead to kings, beginning with Saul and then David and then Solomon. And then there's a split. There's a civil war. There's the uh, Israel in the north. There's Judah in the south. The people of Israel made up 12 tribes. Uh, Ten of the tribes went to uh, Israel in the north. Two of the tribes went to Judah in the south. And when the split happened, that's when things really started going downhill. Uh, Corrupt leadership, uh, people drifting away from God, cycles of apostasy and rebellion, all of these things started. And eventually what happens is the north ends up getting... uh, taken captive by a group called the Assyrians. Uh, quite a while later, uh, the south gets taken captive by uh, a group called the Babylonians. But during those years, you have some of the most famous stories that you hear in Sunday school and throughout the church. Thing, you hear stories about uh, Joshua blowing the trumpet as they're walking around Jericho and the walls come down. Uh, you, The story of uh, of Samson and his long hair and his, his amazing strength. Uh, David taking on Goliath and, and killing him with a slingshot. Uh, Esther risking her life to save her people. You have heroes like King Josiah. You have villains whose names are equal to that of Jezebel. You have the building of the temple in these books the temple under Solomon, and then the destruction of the temple by the Babylonians, and then the rebuilding of the temple by Ezra and Nehemiah. And while all of this is going on, God says, I'm going to unleash the prophets. And so he brings the prophets in, and you've got names like Elijah and Elisha in the north. You've got Isaiah and Micah in the south. And all of this takes place in the history of Israel. And what you see throughout the thread of this is God's redemptive work. Not only in them, but you see his plan for us in the future. So let's walk through it a bit. We're going to begin in the book of Joshua. 
So we're going through Joshua, Judges, Ruth, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Chronicles, First and Second Kings, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. The good news is a lot of these books are actually just one book that they separated out. If the book of Joshua has a theme, it's possessing the land that God has promised to the people of Israel. It's an interesting dynamic to remember that that this land, this promised land that we always hear reference to of Joshua going into the promised land with the Israelites was actually God's land. It was his to, to do whatever he wanted to do with it. But it was the people's land to possess, which is an interesting dynamic that's actually true in our own lives as well. God has given us so much if we would possess it, if we would reach for it, if we would seize it. And accept it. So Moses had led these people out of bondage, out of slavery, out of Egypt, and Joshua completes what Moses began. It took some time. The land was distributed among the 12 tribes. They didn't take full possession of it, or more accurately, they didn't finish the conquering of the people there in order to take full possession of it. Which leads to another question, because if you're like some, you might be sympathetic to the Canaanites, right? I mean, here you've got a group of people who have actually lived in the, they're living in the land, and God is saying, I want you to go in and I want you to conquer these people. But I think we have to state the obvious first that, you know, it's not really the Canaanites' land and it's not Israel's land, it's God's land. He created it, he can do whatever he wants with it. Uh, it but I think at times it, it's, it seems like he's almost ignoring the fact that people are already living there, right? It would be like, uh, you know, you live in your house and, uh, and God says that that's my promised land and I come in and say, get out, I'm going to live there. You'd be like, this is my land. And then I would have to kill you like they did the can. No, I wouldn't do that. But it's not the full story in this situation because I think it, for us, we, we hear this and we hear like that seems mean. It seems judging of God to do this. But I want us to look at who these people were. So this was actually God's planned punishment of the people of Cana for their ways. Uh, this was long in the making. In fact, it was like 400 years in the making. God was displacing them from this land to give it to the people of Israel, but that displacement came because of a ferocious, habitual, unrepenting evil or unrepented evil that was taking place in that land. It, these guys had given themselves over to wickedness. The Canaanites were marked with the worship of false gods, religious prostitution, sexual cults. Uh, in fact, scholars have called the Canaanite cult religion the most sexually depraved of any in the ancient world. And perhaps it's the most depraved in all of ancient history. They have given themselves over to every, every kind of sexual depravity, including incest and even bestiality. At their worst, their uh, orgiastic worship of idols even included human sacrifice, both of children and of adults. There's even imagery of their cult sexual practices of bathing themselves in the human blood of the adults and children whom they had slaughtered. I don't think we have to really feel sorry for them all that much, honestly. 
The Bible says that God had been tolerating this for more than 400 years. Their wickedness kept increasing and increasing, and God kept enduring it and enduring it. 400 years of resistance, uh, 400 years of God's restraint and patience, hoping that they would turn. Why? Because, and this is something that we all need to understand. If we didn't know this already, today we need to understand that no matter what you've heard, judgment is always God's last resort. But the wickedness reached a point where Scripture talks about how God couldn't stomach it anymore. In fact, it says that he vomited them out of his mouth. And so the Israelites taking the land was this divine, righteous judgment. So don't feel sorry for the Canaanites. From Joshua, we go to Judges. Uh, It's named because of Judges. Selected from the people to serve as overseers and rulers. Judges covers the time of the death of Joshua all the way to when Saul is installed as king. This is an interesting time in Israel's history. Some have referred to it as uh, the dark ages of the Israelites. Uh, it's, It's true that in this part of their history, we see this constant ritual abandoning of God by the Israelites. The heart of what went wrong during this period can be found in a sentence that you can read in the book of Judges from Judges chapter 17, verse 6, where it says, In those days, everyone did as he saw fit. And that passage of Scripture is all throughout Judges. In other words, I'm not going to answer to a God in heaven. I'm not going to care about other people. I'm not going to do, I'm going to do what I want to do. No matter whether it's right or, or, or however I see fit, I, I am my own morality, I am my own truth, I am my own everything. And when you read Judges, you see this line over and over and over again, and God attempting to get them to turn around. And so he would allow them to actually be taken captive in order to get their attention. And typically it would. They would, he would get their attention and they would turn and he would deliver them and it would happen again and again. God raises up a judge who would, would show them this. Judges with names like Gideon and Samson and Deborah. And, and if, you, if you've ever seen the movie Wonder Woman and you kind of like that movie, you would like the book Deborah. Uh, she's kind of a, an amazing person. Once rescued, they would go right back to their own ways. It's like this sad, sick, ongoing cycle throughout the book. And uh, in fact, you can see it seven different times this cycle takes place. Seven times they commit apostasy and they abandon God. Seven different times God delivers them when they come to their senses. So why does this keep happening? Why can they not see it? Remember, these are the people who when they, when they came to the Red Sea and they couldn't cross and Moses holds up his staff, the Red Sea parts. Like they know the power of God. They, they've seen the miraculous and yet they continue to turn their back on him. I think it's actually something that we all struggle with. They just maybe a little bit more famously than most. 
But the struggle is this. Instead of influencing the culture around them, they, they allowed the culture around them to influence them, to infiltrate them. Instead of in, uh, in, uh, influencing the culture around them, they led the culture influence them. And I think we do the same. Have you ever prayed the prayer, God, if you just get me out of this situation, I will read your Bible till I die every day. You know, like we, we make these promises, we say these things, God, if you just do this. And then it happens, and then we end up back in our old ways. And so, lest we judge the Israelites for always going through these cycles of turning their backs on God, I think it's important for us to remind ourselves that we are not unlike the Jewish people. These guys began to worship the false idols of the Canaanites. They began to accept their morals and their laws and their values and their standards that they were supposed to to lay claim to the land, to possess it and lay claim. And instead, they allowed the culture and the land to possess and lay claim to them. Which brings us to the book of Ruth, because it's against the backdrop that these events took place. We don't know who wrote the book of Ruth. Most scholars think it was Samuel, but it's this amazing story of a woman who would prove to be the the great-grandmother of King David. It's considered one of the greatest stories in the Bible of love, of faithfulness, of commitment and courage. And it's also a mirror of God's redeeming love for the world. Now, through the Jews, the entire world, including us Gentiles, would be adopted into the kingdom of God. Uh, even by a guy's standards, this is like a rom-com right here. This is a, rom- <laughs> this is a love story, and it's a great love story between a woman named Ruth, and a man named Boaz. Now let's move on to First and Second Samuel, which is actually one book. In the original Hebrew text, just as First and Second Kings is actually one book, First and Second Chronicles is also one book. And the reason we refer to them as First and Second is because when the Bible was translated into the Greek language, it was much longer, it was too long to fit onto those scrolls. Because the Greek language took up more space to write than the Hebrew language, and so they put them on two different scrolls. It became known as the first scroll of Samuel and the second scroll of Samuel, and it just kind of sucked. It didn't suck. It actually stuck, and you should read it as a single book. Collectively, they cover about 500 years, and it carries the name of the author. So uh, as is often the case, Uh, When you see somebody's name, it's typically because they're the one that wrote it. And so in this case, Samuel writes 1st and 2nd Samuel. And Samuel was the last of the judges, but he was the first of the prophets. And his record in the Bible, if you look at the life of Samuel, what you find is that he, uh, for the most part, was without blemish. It's hard to find a single mark against him. This, it really marks a new era in how God dealt with the people of Israel. From this point forward, God would call out prophets through whom he would speak his word and communicate with the people. 
It all begins with Samuel. So uh, God calls him uh, when he's a young boy. When we do baby dedications, we're doing a baby dedication in second service. You'll often hear me refer to the story of Samuel where uh, Samuel is dedicated unto the Lord. So God called Samuel out as a young boy as he was uh, sleeping in the in the temple at the time. And so uh, he becomes a prophet and he proclaims the word of God. He, he also... He was also used to write the Word of God. He, he has this huge heritage connected with the Word of God. And so Samuel loved God's Word, and he was used to tell it as a prophet. And so that's the, the picture of this young boy, and it's why we don't ever despise those who are young, right? Our youth. It's, it, we, we have no idea who the Samuels are in our kids' department, who God is right now even calling out to do the work of the ministry, to love his word and to preach his word and to, uh, and to communicate it for his kingdom. God never, and this is an interesting fact that I came across, God never wanted Israel to have any king but himself. Right? He wanted great leaders. He wanted tribe leaders. He wanted leaders, but leaders who would receive their orders and directions that were coming directly from him. And in a perfect world, God didn't want there to be kings, and he didn't think there needed to be kings, but Israel kept complaining that we want a king. Everybody else has a king. We want a king. And God said, well, just because everybody else has a king doesn't mean... No, he didn't say that, but that's what my parents say. He, he said... They're saying everybody else has a king, and we want a king. And so God gives them a king. And their first king that they got was Saul. Saul was not a good king. He could have been a good king, but he gave in to pride. And he was insanely jealous of David, who would eventually end up being the next king. He was threatened by him. He tried to kill him five different times. But much of what Saul did to get rid of David actually prepared David to be a great king. He learned to trust God. He learned to become independent, to fight and to lead. And, and he loved God. In fact, the Bible gives David one of the highest accolades of all of Scripture, that David was a man after God's own heart. It's not that he was perfect, right? He was far from it. We know the stories of David's epic failures that we see in Scripture. But it was because his heart was fully God's. He looked to God. He trusted God. He hungered for God. When he sinned, he confessed it. He, he became repentant. In fact, that's what mattered most. He had a tender heart toward God in relation to his sin. And that's the thing that separated him from Saul. Both were kings. Both served 40 years. But Saul was an unrepentant sinner. And David repented of his sin. It's a good reminder, honestly, for all of us in how we live our life. When you say, I want to be like David, a, a man after God's own heart, what you're really communicating is when I sin, I want to be a repentant sinner. I want, to, I want a tender heart towards the things of God and receiving his forgiveness and grace. That's what God cares about. And that's what separates people he can use and people he can't. David is this pivotal character. He, he, David is halfway between Abraham, 
who, who really uh, is it, this pivotal point where you've got Abraham who started everything, and then you've got David who forms the Jewish people into a nation, and then you've got Jesus who would come from the house and the line of David to be their savior. So we go into Kings and Chronicles. I'm going to lump them together because they cover much of the same period in history, just from a little bit of a different standpoint. Kings is really the continuation of Samuel. And as the name suggests, it records the events and the reign of the kings. Solomon, right? David's son, the line of kings that followed him both in the north and the south. And before it was over, the north would have 19 different kings and the south would have 20 different kings. And that was over the span of about 400 years. Through Solomon, we see the growth of the kingdom, and then later we see its complete decay and destruction. We, we see a kingdom divided, and then eventually both the north, Israel, and the south, Judah, end up beginning to uh, or get, get taken captive, right? It opens with the building of the temple, and it ends with the destruction of the temple. And it's this downward spiral that's taking place. And honestly, as you're reading through Kings and Chronicles, it's a little depressing. It's depressing to read it because you see this over, this cycle over and over again. But then you have these great prophets such as Elijah and Elisha. Now Solomon, when he became king, didn't, he, he didn't honor God throughout his whole life, but he did start off strong. Uh, if you... If you remember the story, or you may have even heard the reference that Solomon asked God for wisdom, and God gave it to him. Uh, he received it. Solomon built the temple. He, he built the nation into this premier powerhouse uh, uh, as, as this, in this part of the world, so much so that the queen of Sheba said that she was speechless at its grandeur. But then he fell into pride eventually fell into idolatry, but that's not really what split the kingdom. If you really want to know why, like why did this kingdom split, it's two words, Solomon's son. This guy was a political disaster. He was completely clueless. He screwed things up about as bad as anybody could. Here's what's going on. There's a lot of pent-up resentment among the people over high taxes and, and forced labor. And so Solomon's son, Rehoboam, uh, by the way, nothing really changes all that much, but Rehoboam gathered some counselors and leaders together and says, what should I do? These people are turning on me. And they said, listen, if you want the people to love you, you might want to, and if you want to have a long reign, you might want to, uh, to lower the taxes, right? And not make people work as hard, right? Just back off a little bit. And Rehoboam says, oh, they don't like the taxes. They don't like the forced labor. I got an idea. Let's up the taxes and let's make them work even harder, which didn't go over all that well. And so what happened is the 10 tribes, 10 of the tribes said, we're out. We're not putting up with this. We're leaving. And there was a civil war. And so they moved to the north. And then you've got the two tribes that stayed there in the south with Rehoboam. So when this happened, the north just took their toys and they went home and they left. Uh, I have a picture of the divided kingdom just to give you some context of it. Uh, I think we have a picture of it. We, we've got lots of visuals coming up here for you because I can see some of you falling asleep. Uh, so 
Uh, there's the kingdom of Israel. You've got uh, the south kingdom of Judah. You've got the north kingdom of Israel. You can leave it up there until, uh, until we get to the next one. The north, uh, as it became known as Israel, and the south, as it became known as Judah, in the end, the Assyrians capture and take the ten tribes up in the north. Okay, And, and they never return to the promised land. The, the, north, the northern tribes never go back to the promised land. Uh, the south was also captured, by, but by the Babylonians who were eventually defeated by the Persians. And the Persians actually allowed the southern tribes, known as Jews, taken from the tribe name of Judah, to go back into the promised land. And much of what the rest of the Old Testament records circulates around these times, around what's taking place here. But I want to go back to something that I mentioned earlier about Solomon uh, building the temple. And I think it's important for us to understand what that was all about. Because you, you hear a lot of reference to the, uh, the Israelite temple. And what does that even mean? What is, what is that even for? And so we're going to spend just a second here. In the days of Moses, God instructs that a tabernacle be built as a place of worship. And it would look similar to... Uh, this. It was pretty simple. It had to be uh, mobile. And so uh, they're traveling, they're wandering everywhere they went. They would have this tabernacle, this temple. Uh, and in this, the heart of the tabernacle was the holy place. And then inside that, uh, inside that room there would be uh, the, uh, the most holy place. And then beyond that, and beyond the curtain, is the holy of holies. And the holy place and the most holy place were separated by a curtain. The, the holy place represented God's royal guest chamber, where, where God's people symbolically could come before him through the bread, through incense, through the candle uh, stick that we, the lampstand that we read about, that, that, that was placed there, like all of those things. The, the most holy place represented God's throne room. It was the innermost sanctuary. Uh, it was kept separate through a curtain because during the time, people didn't have direct access to the presence of God. Only the priests were allowed to go in. You've heard me reference this before, that they tie a rope around their leg so that if they weren't holy when they went past the curtain and God struck them dead, they could at least yank them out, right? They look at each other and they're like, you go and get them. I'm not going to get them. You go and get them. You know, it's like, it's crazy. So they just yank them out. They would only go in once a year. In fact, it was so holy that only, he, only the high priest could go into it. And even then, he could only go in with a blood sacrifice, which was offered for himself and the sins of the people. Well, the tabernacle eventually receives a permanent home. This is the temporary one. It's moving all around uh, Israel. And so now they receive a permanent home, which was built by King Solomon, and it would have looked uh, something similar to this. We actually have a little bit more of a 3D adaptation of it. So, again, with the holy place separated from the most holy place by the temple veil or a curtain. And this tabernacle uh, what, and this temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. And it was at this time that the Ark of the Covenant was lost. You know, the Ark of the Covenant, it's the thing from Raiders of the Lost Ark. You thought it wasn't real, but it's actually a real thing. I don't know if it looked like that necessarily, but uh, it's a real thing. A man named Zerubbabel uh, rebuilt the temple, 
And a man named Nehemiah restored the walls of the temple, but it wasn't much more than a box. Then the temple was rebuilt and expanded into its glory in 20 BC by a guy named King Herod. Here's what it would have looked like, much more elaborate, but with the same interior design of the previous temple. Okay? This was the temple that Jesus encountered. This was the temple that was destroyed in AD 70. But again, you see the holy place, the most holy place separated by a curtain. And then we only have one picture uh, of this that still survives, right? Here's a picture of it. It's a picture of what's known as the Western Wall or the Wailing Wall. So that wall right there, which actually goes underground, which uh, while we were in Israel, we were able to go through the tunnels and go underground. But this is the most holy place for the Jewish culture because uh, you've, I'm sure, you've seen pictures where they're putting prayers in the walls uh, of, the, of the wall. This is where they go to pray. And this is what's left of that original temple. It's called the Wailing Wall. Here's what's cool about knowing all of that. And I'm sure many of you already know this. But it also serves as a reminder for those who may know this, that this is what the Bible says in Luke chapter 23. And suddenly the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple, that that big curtain that separated from the most holy place, was torn in two, from, not from bottom to top, but from top to bottom. It was torn in two, supernaturally, miraculously ripped apart. The divide between the holy place and the most holy place was taken away. Why? Because Jesus became our high priest. He entered into the most holy place on our behalf. Only he did it with his blood on the cross. And then the curtain came down once and for all. And from that point forward, no matter what anybody tells you, no matter what team they're on, from that point forward, no priest is needed to voice prayers for you on your behalf, to serve as a a mediator between our lives and God. We get to enter into the throne room of God freely because of what Jesus did on the cross. So it's history, it's like ritual, it's all of this stuff, and we're like, I don't even understand. It's a perfect picture of what God did in sending his son Jesus to die on the cross as the perfect sacrifice so that you and I can have relationship with him. We're able to go into God's presence on our own. Ezra and Nehemiah. Let me just read to you Hebrews chapter 10 before we go to Ezra and Nehemiah. This is what the message paraphrase says about it. He says, so friends, we can now without hesitation walk right up to God into the holy place. Jesus has cleared the way by the blood of his sacrifice, acting as our priest before God. The curtain into God's presence is his body. So let's walk. Let's do it. Ezra and Nehemiah, like First and Second Samuel and First and Second Chronicles and First and Second Kings, Ezra and Nehemiah were originally one book. Together, they give us the record of the return of the Jews from exile uh, in Babylon back to the Promised Land. 
Uh, a guy named Zerubbabel had already done a restoration of the temple, but Ezra and Nehemiah led the return as well as the rebuilding of the city wall. They were a team. Ezra was the spiritual leader, the priest, but Nehemiah was just as remarkable. He rose to great prominence because he became the cupbearer to the king. And when we read that, we're like, that doesn't sound like a very great job. Like, he held the cup for the king, right? Well, actually, his job was very important because he was the one that made sure the king didn't get poisoned. You know what that means, right? Like, so a cup of wine poured for the king. Guess what the cupbearer has to do? Take a little sip. Yeah, you're good, you know? If he dies, he's not good. So he rises to this great prominence, and uh, he's like the chief of staff, the organizer, the one with political and economic connections, and together they do this amazing work, and their books, those books, tell their story. Which brings us to Esther, the last of what are known as the history books, which, while it follows Ezra and Nehemiah in the Bible's table of contents, it's actually chronologically out of order. It took place before them. In fact, it's it's place in history is really interesting. Uh, if you've ever seen uh, the movie 300, don't see it. It's really bad. Uh, but it's the account of this. It's the account of a guy named Xerxes who attacks these 300 Spartans. It's bloody. It's crazy. They hold him off. And that Xerxes is the one, is the same Xerxes from the book of Esther. For example, Esther's story is of a beautiful Jewish woman who was selected to be queen by the king of Persia, Xerxes. And she uses her position to save the Jewish people from, from genocide. So there you have it. Twelve books in about 40 minutes. You have an overview of the history of Israel And although it's anything but exhaustive, I hope that it will at least spark something. Maybe you went and saw 300, and so now you should read the book of Esther. I want us to pray.